Well, over the, the history of our country, there have been very famous ideas that promised change and promised to be the answers to many problems we have faced. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed the executive order that we call the Emancipation Proclamation to free slaves and give them the life that they deserve. In the 1930s, the the New Deal was presented to champion alleviating poverty during and after the Great Depression. In 1987, Ronald Reagan famously said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall to unite a country, to unite political tension after the Cold War. There are new ideas and new programs and new policies. And these three examples I just shared were all intended to produce good, to be answers to real life problems. And some of these worked really well. Some of these worked somewhat. Some of these didn't work at all. But what's interesting is that all three of these issues, racism and poverty and political tension, still exists despite new famous ideas coming to alleviate the problem. Now, we should, in this world, pursue programs and ideas, and we should fix things, but a new idea, a new program, a new solution eventually in our world seems to stop working, or it fails, or it just doesn't seem to catch on, right? You see all the time companies, new companies starting with a fresh new idea, and yet soon enough in a year or two, they are simply a fad. New does not always bring answers, and new does not always bring stability or permanence. But today, we're going to see something in the Bible that's labeled new that will never become old. Something that will never expire, something that will always be the solution. It does not need to be fixed or edited or tweaked or adapted for a new Culture, no, we are looking at something that never goes out of date, because when God declares it, it is so, and the new that we are looking at today is what we are calling God's new people, the new people of God. He has established a kingdom through Jesus and has filled it with citizens, and this new people, this new kingdom is firmly established, and his people will live as long as they want them to live on this earth, and then their soul and their spirit and their future glorified bodies will be eternal, and nothing can stop them. We're going to be looking at a few passages over four chapters in the book of Isaiah. Please turn to Isaiah there. We're going to be looking first in chapter 61. It's on page 620 of those pew Bibles in front of you or underneath your seat. We have this sermon of Isaiah left and then one more next week and then we have worked our way through all 66 chapters of this wonderful book. And then we will pick back up on finishing through the book of Acts in just a couple weeks. I want to begin our time this morning by reading the first four verses of chapter 61 and the first four verses of chapter 62. This is the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, 
the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask you by your spirit to open the eyes of our heart that we may be able to receive your word this morning. You may bring some of us to life. You will sanctify us. You will teach us, rebuke us, encourage us. Let your word do its work. Spirit, help us. Amen. The first four verses we read there from chapter 61 are the words of Jesus, the Messiah, to the world. The first four verses in chapter 62 that we read are verses about what Jesus will accomplish for his people. And we're going to look at a couple more verses from a couple other chapters, but I want to summarize it all by giving you the main point of these chapters as well as this sermon. Here it is. Rejoice in this good news, church. Jesus has already made you a new people, and he will conquer everything that opposes you. So we are called to rejoice from this passage. For Jesus has made the church a new people, and Jesus, in the end, will conquer everything that opposes his church. Now, these are verses about Jesus. How do I know this? Well, though Isaiah here was written five, six hundred years before Jesus, we know it's about Jesus because Jesus preaches his very first sermon from this section of Scripture. In Luke chapter 4, I want to read this too. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches his very first public sermon. Verse 16, it says this, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus goes to the synagogue. He goes to the temple. He stands up to read from the prophet of Isaiah, written 500 years before Jesus was born. 
and he reads this passage, and it's fulfilled. He takes the word, he reads it, explains it, he preaches it, and he says, I am the one who's going to give liberty to the captives. I'm going to give sight to the blind. I am here to proclaim the year of freedom. It's interesting to note that, yes, Jesus was a miracle worker. Yes, Jesus primarily, his ministry is dying on the cross for our sins, but Jesus here was a preacher, and he preached from the Old Testament. From Isaiah, his ministry was preaching, came to a sinful, condemned, lost, blind, and enslaved people to make them into a new people. How did he do that here? He took the word of God and he preached it to them. Through the preaching, the proclamation of the word, new life comes, a new people are formed. And Isaiah prophesied about this 500 years before Jesus. Now, if we look at Isaiah 61, we see a lot of imagery that Isaiah uses to describe this new life. We have good news coming to the poor. We have the binding up of a broken heart. We have proclaiming liberty to the captives to open the prison for those who are bound there in chapter 61. In chapter 62, Isaiah proclaims that no longer do people have to be called desolate or forsaken or forgotten or rejected, but now people can be called the delight of God. Look at that. Verse 60, chapter 62, verse 4. People can be called the delight of God, and then he says, and then your land will be married again. Now, that seems a little bit strange for us, but remember, Isaiah is writing and talking to a group of people who have been taken from their land. They're in exile. They've been captured. They're far from home, and God is saying, you may be exiled out of your land right now, but one day, your land, my kingdom, will fully be yours, and you will be so in close with your land and your people and your God that you will be married to it. Isaiah is declaring that Jesus is taking what is old and making it new. Taking the sick and making them healthy. Taking the trash of this world and turning it into treasure. Jesus is in the transformation business. He's about making new things. And next week, the last sermon in Isaiah, we're looking at the new heavens and new earth, where we're going to be spending all of our eternity with Jesus. But today, before we get to where we're going to be, he deals with the people who are going to be there. The new people living in that new heavens and that new earth. But this idea of being made new, of being the delight of God, is only good news for you. Is only going to excite you if you see yourself as being poor in spirit. Only if you see yourself as being captured or enslaved. Only will this be good for you if you realize you are blind to God. Because we as humans are very good at convincing ourselves that we're doing just fine on our own. This passage may sound like an uplifting, inspirational thought that maybe you'd find a copy in you know, Chicken Soup for the Soul. But these verses can only be truly good news to you if you realize that you are the one needing to be made new. 
The gospel means good news, and good news is only good if you have a need for it, if it's fixing something or resolving something. So if you never get to the point of spiritual honesty and actually admit that you are the target audience of this gospel message, then the gospel is going to be some foreign concept to you. But if you do look around this room, if you scan around this room, you're looking at a room full of people who've come to the honest decision that they need Jesus. That their sin has captured them and held them in a prison. They were blind to God and the good things of God. That they've broken the law of God. And this church is full of people who came honestly and said, I need something. I need Jesus. I need to bridge this chasm of gap that my sin brought me before God. And this church is full of people who were poor in spirit, realizing they were spiritually bankrupt before God. And they fell on their knees before Jesus. And he has brought good news to this church. New life to be a new people. So if you have turned to Jesus, you are a new person. Made new by him. It's done. It is finished. You are declared new. No longer declared desolate or forsaken or forgotten. But you right now, CBBC, listen to this. Your new name is God's delight. Not condemned. Not missing the mark. Not forgotten, but God's delight. It's right there, chapter 62, verse 4. And nothing can take the delightful gaze of Jesus off of you if you are his child. We are a new people and will be his people forever. All because of Jesus. Because he took the sin that blinded me and enslaved me and broke my heart. He died for it, resurrected it, conquering it, coming to life. We can now be the new people. So before we look at some of the characteristics of this new people that Isaiah beautifully paints, I want to speak to two people here. Firstly, if you're here and and you don't consider yourself a Christian or a believer, maybe you don't consider yourself religious, I want to say to you that Jesus here is offering you a new life and a new identity. You're still going to be you. You're going to have your personality, your job your family, but you will be set free from all of the unsatisfying sin and pursuits of this life that is holding you down. You will be set free from that guilt and shame. You will be given a new identity, one where God smiles down in delight over you, a new life that's eternal, a life where you are loved and welcomed into the people of God forever. And this can be yours, and we pray this morning that you see a need for that. And if you see that need, you turn to Jesus and you are given his grace. It's free. But I also want to speak to you who are Christians. You do consider yourselves believers in Christ. This gospel is not just good news for you once. It's not just something that you rub your feet on like a welcome mat and come into the church. The gospel is on every step. It's every foundation that you take in the Christian life. And as you read through Isaiah 61 and 62, you're reading what is true of you today. You have been set free. You have been given sight. You are the delight of God. Because one day, today, tomorrow, next week, guilt and shame pop up. 
Your past will try to haunt you. Say, you're not worthy to be called the delight of God. You should be called forsaken. Or you'll make a sin. Or you'll make a mistake. And you're going to compare yourself to another Christian. And you will be tempted to believe that you are not saved by Christ. Or that Christ's delightful gaze is off of you. Maybe you will fear death. But I want to remind you of a phrase in chapter 61, verse 2. The first phrase in verse 2. Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At first glance, that doesn't seem to be a very meaningful phrase. But the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to what ancient Israel called the year of jubilee. Every 50 years in ancient Israel was a year of jubilee. What that means, you can read about it in Leviticus 25. On the 50th year, that year, all debts were canceled. If you owed your neighbor 100 bucks and that 50th year came around, it was forgotten like it never existed. If you sold yourself into work slavery because of your debt because you were poor, you would be set free on the 50th year. Jesus is saying, I have come in to bring a new year of jubilee, a year of freedom, of favor. And here, by year, Jesus does not mean for 365 days. He means forever. If you come to Christ, then forever you are living in the year of jubilee. Set free, no matter what debt you think you have, no matter what sin you committed, it is free because in Christ there is freedom. So when shame or past guilt or even present guilt comes in and tries to convince you you are not worthy of the delight of God, you need to tell yourself and those condemnations, I am in the year of the Lord's favor. Because there are times, a lot of times, where you need to trust the truth of God more than your feelings. You are part of the new people of God. A pastor in Nashville, Ray Ortland, says this, The gospel announces that Christ has won the victory over everything that's against us. If you've committed what you think is the unpardonable sin, if you've been broken by your failures, if you fear that your chance at life is over, Jesus announces to you a life so new that if you understand what he's saying, you'll have difficulty believing it can be yours. And yet it is. So rejoice right now, church, because you are his delight. This is yours now. You are part of his new people. But Isaiah, over these chapters, gives a few descriptions or characteristics of the beauty of being a new people of God. So there's three of these we're going to go through briefly. So if you're a Christian, you're just going to hear further about what you are saved into and what your eternity looks like in this community. So the first thing about the people of God you need to know is this, is that we are a global people. A global people. So here Isaiah is writing to the people of God living in Judah. And yet he tells them something important, that the people of God are not from one nation or one tribe. They don't speak just one language. They don't look like a certain thing. For ancient Israel, this would have been shocking. They were called to separate themselves from all nations. 
And yet here, God is saying, I'm going to bring people from all over the world to be your brothers and your sisters and live in kingdom together. Look at chapter 60 of Isaiah, verses 1 to 7, page 619 in your pew Bible. Isaiah writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness is the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you, and they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Verse 3 mentions that nations shall come to the light of Jesus. Kings will come. And God says to the people of Judah and Israel in verse 4, look around, you are going to see people coming to gather with you. It's only when the gospel goes out to the nations that God says to the people in verse 5 that they will be radiant. They are radiant. Why? Because the gospel has gone out and brought more. In verse 7, God says he makes his house beautiful. When? After the nations all come to worship him. What this means is that God has always purposed his kingdom and his people to be full of different people. And his world and his kingdom is most beautiful when all the nations and tribes and tongues are coming to proclaim Jesus. Christianity is not for one group or one tribe or one nation or even just a few nations. God's gospel and his purpose is to see the entire world gathering before him and glorifying him. God mentions that one of the things that makes his kingdom beautiful is a diversity of people bowing down in unity under the throne of Jesus. He mentions a lot of nations here, Midian and Sheba and Kedar, all of these from different parts of the world, and yet they unify and meet before Jesus. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not to be hoarded. Next time you are running errands around Chippewa, I want you to observe how many storage facilities there are. And we have such a need to store the stuff that we don't want in our house and that we're probably going to forget is there, that we pay money. We hold on to this stuff. We can't give it up. We can't give it away. We hold on to this stuff and we put it in a storage locker. Christians, we do this with the gospel. We love it. We value it. But we hoard it. We don't give it out. We don't think that the gospel is for the world. We don't go and tell. And in our minds, we think it's for us. It's for our church, for our city, for our country. But the gospel is for the world and every single person we interact with. Not to be locked up in a locker, to be kept pristine and out of view. 
So right now, in 2021, there are churches and Christians around the globe who gather and worship and meet God. We have brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are gathered this week, maybe just hours ago, whatever the time gap is. They were hearing a sermon. They were praying. They were getting together. They were singing. They were baptized. They had the Lord's Supper. And guess what? They are our people. We may never meet those Christians in Turkey. And yet they're our people. And one day you will meet them. In the new heavens and the new earth. And we have different looks and languages. Our worship music is different. Our styles of this and that vary. But we unify under the banner of Christ. We've talked about this before. But a local church like ours, we call it an embassy of God's kingdom. Right now, we're in an embassy of the kingdom of God. Right. So if you go to another nation, you'll see all these other national embassies. If you go to Guatemala, in the capital city there is an American embassy. And though its walls and its foundation is literally on Guatemalan soil, the moment you walk through the door of the American embassy, you are standing on American soil, not Guatemala's. A local church is like that. Though we are still in this world that's corrupted, that's rejecting God at times, we are actually in the kingdom of God if we're the church. We are the church, and throughout the world, there are embassies just like this, gathering on this earth to proclaim the goodness and grace and love of God in their own city, in their own town, to worship God. We are in this world, but we belong to God and His kingdom, and that's how God designed it. It's not just for one group of people or one person to be in the church, but all people to be inside of the church, and it's beautiful. And this morning, we are doing exactly what our brothers and sisters around the world have been doing. And so one day when Christ returns, all of us brothers and sisters are going to unify together from the entire world globally in person to worship Jesus and not travel, not airplanes, no language, no distance, nothing will separate us. We will gather together as the big and beautiful people of God and that is our future. And so by the providence of God, the Zanks, our missionaries, are here when we're going through this part of Isaiah. And they, like our other missionaries that we support, see that the gospel is for the world. So I encourage you, how can you remind yourself that the gospel is for the world? So maybe you need to write to one of the missionaries that we support here and encourage them, ask them questions. Maybe you personally give some of your money to support some of our missionaries Here, maybe you pray as a family for a missionary every single week. Our encouragement, our prayers, our financial support is crucial for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. And all that we're doing is ushering in the future reality of heaven. I think by doing this, we humble ourselves. We remind ourselves that we are not the superior Christians, or that the world doesn't revolve around us, that we're not the center of Christianity, that we fundamentally are no different than our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia or China or Mexico or Ireland. We belong to one another, and we have a lot to learn from Christians in Ethiopia. We can become stronger because of the example of boldness of the Christians in China. And do you know that there are more evangelical Christians in Africa than in America? 
And that one day, this is probably not far from reality, there may be mission trips from Africa to America. That humbles us and yet causes us to rejoice that all the people of God from wherever they live right now are seeking out Jesus and advancing the gospel. And we are just one small part in that, and yet it's a crucial part. We are one people of God who need each other. And for all of eternity, we will be worshiping with the new people of God. It's beautiful. Two more things, much briefer than that, I believe. The second characteristic of the people of God is the permanence of the people. The permanence of the people. The fact that our identity and our belonging to God is permanent should encourage us. Now, we're in a world, especially a country, full of transactions. Right? We buy something, we know that one day we're going to replace that thing. It all takes is one accident to ruin your car. Right? Even in our relationships and jobs, we almost expect them to fail or change or be temporary. Right, you buy something to do at the store, and they say, do you want to buy the three-year warranty? And I'm like, is this thing going to die on me? Like, why am I buying this? And even permanent markers, right? <laughs> and yet God is saying here, you are permanently, with a capital P, my people. No need for a warranty or a backup plan, or a retirement fund in case it doesn't work out. No, your name is written permanently in the Lamb's book of life, and that cannot be erased or scrubbed off. Look at chapter 60, verse 17 through 21. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Over and over again, God is emphasizing the permanence of his people, how secure they are, how much of an upgrade he is to them than the world. He chiefly demonstrates this by showing that the sun will not go down. The moon will not go away. Rather, God's shining and glorious light and heat will forever be fixed upon them, even when the world feels cold. I went to college in downtown Chicago, and to go to a restaurant or an event or to run an errand, I had to take the train. Didn't have a car, couldn't afford parking, and I regretted that in January and February. It's freezing, and you have to walk a few blocks in windy Chicago to get to the train station. You climb the steps, and then you most likely have to try to find a warm spot next to a stranger. And what they soon eventually did is they put up these heaters. But if you don't get there soon enough, there's nowhere, no spots for you to sit by the heaters. But those couple times when I got up really early, I hit the jackpot, and I was able to stand right under that heater waiting for that train to come. 
But most of the time, you're standing out there waiting for a train, no idea how long it's going to be, and you are freezing, and it's snowing, or it's sleeting, and you feel absolutely miserable, and you're just jealous of the people standing under the heater. But God here is saying that even when the world is cold and it's suffering and it's snowing and it's sleeting, if you are a Christian, you are always under the direct heat and warmth of God. Forever, from right now to all of eternity, the Son of God will never go down on you if you are in Christ. He always shines his light on his people. He will carry us through and we will face adversity and trials and sickness and temptation and obstacles. And though we know our identity in him is permanent, what did Jesus say? He said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Because his church, his people, his new people are permanently pressed upon his heart. The church as a people, they're going nowhere. If I would have told you 25 years ago that Blockbuster would go bankrupt, you would have laughed at me. Right? Everyone went and rented movies. It was a big thing. And there is one Blockbuster left in the world. It's a tourist site. But now it's a cultural fad, right? People are going and say, hey, I, I found a Blockbuster. The church is not like the last blockbuster or a business or a cultural fad. The church is going nowhere, and it is eternal. And the economy, the change in culture, the shifting of the world doesn't change the existence of the church. We are forever secure in the eyes of God. So, brother and sister, your prayers are heard by God. His attention and his love is on you. There is nothing that can interrupt that communication. When you pray, when you cry out, He hears you. He's never casting you to the side or ignoring you. His radiant and warm love is upon you permanently pressed. And brother and sister, your, your future is secure, which means you can live securely in the present. The God who will wipe away all sin and disease and war and opposition is the same God who's holding you up right now in whatever you face. So are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you wondering what this fall is going to look like? Maybe you have kids in school and you're wondering what are the masks going to be? What's our state going to do? What's our country going to be? Things are going to change. They're going to flip-flop. They're going to change again. But guess what won't change or won't flip-flop is the permanent gaze of God on his people. So if you are a Christian, you are a member of an eternal people, and we can be confident and we can be encouraged. Third and finally, the last characteristic of the people of God is that we are an avenged people. An avenged people. This may be a bit shocking, but we should rejoice in the fact that in Christ, our conqueror will display his vengeance upon this world. Now, the first two points we made about the people being global and being permanent is present now. We're living in those present realities today. But this one is a lot more forward-looking. We are waiting for the day for Jesus to return. And one of the things that he's going to accomplish at his second coming is he's going to be the powerful avenger of his people. Look at chapter 63, verses 1 to 8. 
Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, in his eyes speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This is Jesus. Isaiah is painting this portrait of Jesus clothed in crimson. These red garments that he's wearing. And these garments are red because on them is the blood of the enemies of Jesus. This is a picture, a serious picture of the conquering aspect of Jesus. Imagery, symbolism, but a a realistic picture of the justice of God that is upcoming. Verse 4 mentions the day of vengeance when all this takes place. One Bible commentator says that vengeance is punishment, but it's punishment inflicted by the victim. Right? So vengeance is punishment inflicted by the victim. When Jesus returns on the last day, he's going to welcome in his people, but he's also going to condemn and judge and practice vengeance on all those opposing him, the gospel, and the church. So Christian, you are so unified and joined to Christ that when you are treated unjustly, when you are persecuted, when you are abused, when you are afflicted sinfully, that is not just you being attacked, but that's you and Jesus being attacked. Because you are his and he is yours. In, in Acts 9, that when, when Saul, we call him Paul, was converted, Jesus asked him the question, why are you persecuting me? He was just killing men and women Christians. But now Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It's because Jesus and his people cannot be separated. So if you are opposed by sin, if you are afflicted by someone, if you are persecuted for your faith, if the world stands against you, it's not just standing against you, it's standing against Christ. And on that last day, If those afflictors, those enemies have not repented and have not turned to Jesus, they will be treated with absolute justice because God is a God who protects his own holy name and protects his people by saving them and conquering their enemies. So Christian, you do not have to seek revenge now. You don't have to wallow in bitterness or plan an attack. You don't have to wonder if that person will ever be found out or if they will be punished for what they did because Jesus will have the last word with them. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history frees us from having to pursue violence now personally. He will avenge us. He will avenge his name. 
And there is a day that God has on the calendar where he will take care of all the wrongdoings, all the broken promises, all the backstabbings of history with absolute justice. And though it might seem strange, but we can praise him and rejoice in him that justice will win, that he will conquer everything that stands in his way. And all that will be left will be righteousness and love and peace. The new people of God will be avenged by God out of love for his people. God loves us so much that he protects us through the very end. And guess what? There is no end. So we wait because one day he will return for us, his new people, and we will gather from all corners of the earth to rest in the permanent love of God without one threat of evil. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We give you glory. We ascribe all honor to you that you would save a wretched, sinful people like us and your eyes of delight would be on us. I pray you carry us through this week. Whatever adversity we face, help us rest confidently knowing that we are your people and that nothing can befall us that will not bring you glory. That you have our back and our front and our sides. We praise you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.